familiar passage of scripture, one of my favorite. Um, I had a little boy come up to me after a service once. I was preaching at a church, been preaching at a, at a revival for about five days that week. And after I'd got finished, he walked up and he said, uh, Brother Israel. And I said, what, son? He said, uh, I got a question for you. And man, when you hear that as a pastor, sometimes you cringe because, um, especially when it comes from a child, because ch children can come up with some pretty big questions sometimes. And he said, I've got something I need to ask you. And I said, what do you need? He said, how many favorite Bible verses do you have? And so I know I say that a lot. I always tell you it's one of my favorite verses. But that is especially true for John chapter 14 and verse number 6. It's certainly one of my favorites. And it ought to be one of your favorites. It's probably one you've heard many times and uh, you've read many times. You've heard it preached on many times. You may even have it memorized. And if you don't have it memorized, it'd be a good one to start with. John 14, 6 tells us something that we all need to get a hold of. Now, if I was going to entitle my message this morning, it would be in Christ alone. Look at John 14, 6 with me, what Jesus says to his disciples of that day. He said unto him, I am the way, watch this, the truth and the life. Jesus says, I am the way as opposed to a way. He said, I am the truth as opposed to a truth. He said, I am the um, life. I am the uh, only way that you're ever going to experience eternal life, which is abundant life. It's in me. And now, if he had said, I am a way, a truth, or a way of receiving eternal life, then that would have meant there could have been many different ways that people could come to the Father, that people could get ready for heaven. Can you say amen? Uh, but Jesus didn't say that. He, he narrowed it down to himself, and he said, I am the way. That means there's no other way. He said, I am the truth, and I am the life. And he said in the last part of this verse, no one, not one person, comes unto the Father except through me. So nobody gets to the Father except through the Son. If you believe that, say amen. amen. Jesus is the only way. Now that's not very popular in today's world. There's a lot of people preaching and teaching and a lot of people who believe that there are many ways to get to heaven, many ways to God. Folks, that's not what the Bible said. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. One of my favorite Christian authors is C.S. Lewis. And my, one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis is this. He said, I believe in Christianity just like I believe in the sun. Not simply because I can see it, but because by it I can see everything else. <laughs> that's, that's good stuff. What he's saying is, it's because of my relationship to Jesus that everything else is becoming real to me. Beginning to make sense to me. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, I am the truth. <laughs> see, if you want to know the truth of what God wants for you, it's found in Jesus. If you want to know what's pleasing unto God as a husband, it's found in Jesus. If you want to know what your purpose is as a wife, it's found in Jesus. If you want to know, listen, what it looks like and what it means to be a godly husband or a, a godly father or a godly wife or a godly mother, listen, it's found in Jesus. It's in Christ that everything else starts to make sense. And without Him, we're really just spinning our wheels. And I'm going to tell you, that's why I feel sorry for people who don't know the Lord. 
They're doing the best they can do. They're just like Jesus said, they're scattered like sheep that don't have a shepherd. And the Bible says he stood up and on the, on the hillside there, looked out over all those people and began to weep because they were wandering around trying to do the best they could, but they had no leadership. They had no purpose. See, our purpose is only found in Christ. He's the truth. He's the life. In Christ alone is the title of one of the most fa- uh, popular Worship songs are one of my favorite songs. I'm not going to read it to you. Y'all know that wouldn't be a blessing to anyone, but I will read it to you. Listen to what it says. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. How many can testify to that this morning? That through the dark days in your life, through the drought and through the storm, Jesus is your hope. He's the anchor that holds. He's the friend that sticks closer than our brother. He's our ever-present help in our time of need. He's the immutable God who does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, tomorrow, and forever. It's in Christ alone. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. It's in Christ alone that we find hope. Now, let me tell you what's happening in this world. Satan's lying to us. Many of you know Billy Graham. The Reverend Billy Graham is probably the uh, most well-known evangelist of our time. He's probably the greatest soul winner the world may have ever known. I don't know, but I love that brother. I'm so thankful for his ministry. He's been a faithful servant of the Lord Jesus for many, many years. You know what Billy Graham said? He said over 30 years ago on a uh, nationally televised uh, TV show that he believed 75% to 85% of professing Christians that are uh, members of churches are lost. That means he, he's saying he believes 75 to 85% of people that are church members, that are professing believers, are trusting in something else besides Jesus for their salvation. R.A. Torrey, one of the greatest Christian authors of all time, he lived in the late 1800s and into the 19, or early 1900s, was a great evangelist, great preacher, a uh, very uh, uh, awesome writer. But R.A. Torrey said he only believed 10% of people inside the local church who are professing believers to actually be saved. That means he believed 90% of people that were church members, professing believers, were trusting in something else besides Jesus to get them to heaven. Wow. Vance Havner. I don't know if you've ever heard of Vance Havner, but I love that brother. He preached for many years in revival meetings all over this nation and all over the world. If you ever get a chance, look up Vance Havner. You can download some of his preaching and read some of his writings, and he's just a great man of God. But Vance Havner said he believed 65% of the professing Christians in the world today were lost. They were trusting in something other than Jesus for their salvation. Now let me say something to you, folks. Even though I respect Billy Graham greatly and I respect R.A. Torrey greatly and I respect Vance Havner greatly, none of those men know your heart and my heart or nobody else's heart. 
They don't know the hearts of men. Now, I respect their opinion. I certainly do that. But they don't know where our eternal destination lies. They don't know what decision we've made concerning Christ. But let me tell you someone who does know. Jesus knows. Can you say amen? Now, listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He said, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. He said, and many there be that go through the wide gate. He said, but straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leadeth unto life. Listen, it's straight is the way, narrow is the way that leads to life eternal. And listen how Jesus puts this, and few there be that find it. Now what's he saying? Well, he's saying really the same thing that R.A. Torrey and Vance Havner and Billy Graham said. There are few that are going to find the way unto everlasting life. Now, again, those men may not know your heart and my heart, but I want you to know Jesus knows everything about me and everything about you. He's the omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God of the universe who knows all things past, present, and future about everybody. He knows me better than I know me. He knows you better than you know you. Folks, I want to tell you something. Jesus knows where you stand today. A.W. Tozer, another great writer that I loved, A.W. Tozer says this, he said that you can fool people. He said you can fool yourself, but nobody can fool God. <laughs> See, I can fool people. I, folks, I won't tell you, it's not going to take much to fool Brother Israel. I'm not that smart. I only see you three hours a week. So you can fool me. And the truth is I can fool you. But me nor you can fool God. He knows where we are, spiritually speaking. He knows whether or not we've truly been born again. I have to ask you this morning, is your faith in Christ alone for salvation? Jesus spoke in John chapter number 8, and I'm not going to flip over there this morning, but I do want you to write this scripture down, John 8, 44. He's talking to a group of people um, some Jewish people who believed simply because of their physical birth, it made them uh, children of God. They, they believed just because they were born physically as a Jew that, that they were uh, uh, in, inside God's family. And Jesus made it very plain to them. He said, you are of not, not of my Father which is in heaven. You are of your father the devil. And then he said this in John 8, 44, your father's lied to you. He's a liar and the father of lies and he's lied to you in making you believe that you are God's children when you're not. So how does Satan lie to us? How does the great deceiver work? How does the author of confusion work in lies? How does the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy everything that God is trying to do, how does he operate? Well, he tries to lie to the, to the saint and, and make him believe or her believe that they are a sinner. And he tries to lie to the sinner and make them believe they are a saint. He will try to cause doubt in the heart and mind of the, the one who has been born again and cause them to fall and stumble at their doubts. And he will cause those who have never been born again to believe they're all right with God and don't need the Lord. He is a liar. And he's lying to people today. That's why R.A. Torrey and Vance Havner and 
Men like Billy Graham say that a large majority of people that are in church weekly are not even born again. They're believed the lie of the enemy. Now let me say this to you folks. We can look to the Word of God and see proof of salvation. We can also look to the Word of God and see some non-proofs of salvation. So this morning, I'm going to give you very quickly four non-proofs of salvation. Four things that you can't count on to say that you've been born again. It, it, listen, he says in, uh, uh, first of all, I want, you to, I want to talk about the, a past event that never brought real change. Take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter number 8. Acts chapter number 8, there's a story there of a man named Philip. Philip was a blood-bought, born-again, spirit-filled believer who was doing the work of the Lord, preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord was using him greatly in a place called Samaria. Now, in Samaria there, there was a man by the name of Simon the Sorcerer, the Bible calls him. Now, look what happens in Acts chapter number 8, starting with the ninth verse. But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched people of Samaria, giving that himself was some great one. Verse 10, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the great power of God. This man was using trickery and um, sleight of hand, sorcery um, that comes not from God but from other things to fool the people into believing he had power that he didn't have. That's Simon. Now look what happens in verse 11. And to him they gave regard because that of a long time he had bewitched them, he had fooled them, he had tricked them with sorceries. Verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. So what's happened? Here is Simon there in Samaria, and he's got a great following, and everybody believes he has power that he does not actually have, and it's making him a pretty good living. And then comes along Philip. Philip standing in the power of God, preaching the word of God. The Holy Spirit starts convicting men's hearts and lives, women's hearts and lives, children's hearts and lives. People are getting saved. They're believing on Christ, being born again. And being baptized. Now, this cuts out on some of Simon's money-making opportunities from his sorceries. Look what happens in verse 13. Then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Everybody see that? The Bible says that Simon had some type of past event but look, it didn't bring real change. Go down to verse 19. Verse 19, the Bible teaches us in these verses in between here, and you can read that at a later date for, for lack of time. We're not going to look at them this morning. But Peter and John come to Samaria. They come from Jerusalem to Samaria because they had heard of the work that God was doing there. And when Peter and John got there, um, listen what um, Simon says. The Lord was doing a great work through Peter and John. Through the laying on of hands, people were being filled with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 19, Simon says, Give me also this power that on whomever I may lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. Look at verse 18. And when Simon saw through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money. So he offers money so that he might receive the power that Peter and John has. And look what Peter does. Peter rebukes him. Peter comes against him. He says in verse 20, But Peter said unto him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Let me tell you what happened in Simon's life. Simon had a past event that did not bring about real change. 
Now let me tell you what scares me because I talk to people all the time. And I talked to him about, gee, I talked to a young man yesterday, was able to share the gospel with him. But let me just tell you how God works, how good God is. It blessed my soul, blew my mind yesterday how God does things. We went up to work on that house there in uh, Phil Campbell, and um, that, uh, yesterday morning, uh, the young man that lived at the house, he was helping me do his room. We were hanging some sheetrock. We were in there working together, and he got, began talking to me. And he began talking to me about all the things that his parents had done and things that his parents didn't do. And let me just say something to you, parents. Whether you know it or not, what you do matters. I'm telling you, it absolutely broke my heart hearing this young man hurting like he was because of the decisions and choices that was beyond his control. His parents had just went wayward and done things, just got stupid. That makes me mad because this, this young man cannot help his situation. And he's telling me about all that and right in the midst of that, the Holy Spirit of God spoke to my heart and said, share the gospel with him. And I prayed within myself. That young man is just continually talking. You could just tell he wanted somebody to talk to and so I, I, I was sitting there praying the whole time, Lord, if this is what you want me to do, I don't want it to be of me. I want you to open the door. You open the door, Lord, and I'll step through it, but I need to know you're going to open it. And about, I don't know, probably 45 minutes to an hour later, we're still in there working, and that young man out of the blue says, Brothers, let me ask you something. Do you believe in the paranormal? I said, Absolutely. I said, But let me tell you this. What I really like to talk about is not the paranormal, but the supernatural. I said, what I'm trying to say is, there are supernatural things at work in this universe, in our lives. I said, there's no doubt there are demonic spirits that are at the direction of Satan, who is our enemy, and they're going about trying to destroy everything God's trying to do. That's true. We see that in our world today. I said, but let me tell you what I really want to talk about. I want to talk to you about the Holy Spirit that is at work in the life of a believer that changes us to be what Christ wants us to be. I said, brother, what I am really concerned about is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in my life and what the Holy Spirit can do in your life. He said, oh, never thought of it like that. And so he got kind of quiet, and I just kept praying. I said, Lord, work in this. Help me, God. Show me something. He comes back in about 30 minutes later. He says, what do you think about Eve eating that apple? How do you view that? Well, praise God. <laughs> I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Let's talk about it. And I said, well, yeah, Eve ate the forbidden fruit. She disobeyed God. And because she disobeyed God, sin entered this world. And that sin became a cancer that was passed down generation to generation to generation through the seed of man all the way down to me and you. And we came here. We came here sinners, separated from God. But God loves you. And because he loves you, he sent his son to pay your sin debt at the cross so that the sin might be taken care of, so that the separation could be taken care of. And now all who place their faith in Jesus can be born again. Well, I said, have you done that? He said, well, I think I have. And I said, son, let me tell you something. You need to know for sure. And I said, I want you to do this. 
I wouldn't trust as much in what happened years ago that hadn't made any real change in your life. What's God doing in your life today? Because I'm going to tell you something. Don't get me wrong. I believe with all my heart, any man, woman, boy, or girl that is convicted by the Holy Spirit, ask the Lord to forgive them of their sins and save them. I believe, listen to me, if God won't save you and you doing that, I'll lay my Bible down and never preach again. But I'm going to tell you, if it's a true conversion experience, there will be change in your life. And, and I, it bothers me when I talk to these people that li- they're out living in the world, doing the things of the world, have no desire for the things of God whatsoever, and you share the gospel with them, they say, oh, well, I, I, I got saved 20 years ago. Hadn't been in church in 20 years, but guess what? I got saved 20 years ago. Lived a lifestyle that is in no way, shape, form, or fashion pleasing to God, but I got saved. Folks, when you really get saved, you get the power of God that enables you to do and be what God wants you to be. There's a change. Let me take, give you two things that's going to happen to the believer who truly has a past experience with God that does bring change. Let me tell you what happens. First of all, there's conviction of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews chapter number 12. In verse number, I just want to look at verses 5 and 6. He says, and you have forgot the exhortation which speaking unto you as little children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chastens. He corrects and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening or the correction of God, watch this. God deals with you as with a son. Let me tell you what that means. If you've truly been born again into the family of God and become an adopted son or daughter of God himself, he deals with you as his children. And because he loves you, he's not going to leave you like he found you. He's going to keep correcting you and make you into what he wants you to be, which is the image of his precious son. So what I'm trying to say to you is this. As a child of God, we can sin. But let me tell you what the Holy Spirit does. He makes it so you don't enjoy sin like you used to. And when you do sin, He begins to convict your heart and let you know it. Let me tell you what I've done just this morning. Just this morning, I snapped at my wife and bit her head off. Because I'm not a perfect husband yet. But you know what? She didn't have to tell me that was wrong when I did it. That happened right before I left coming to church this morning. When I got to church and I began preparing for this message I'm preaching to you, the Holy Spirit of God wouldn't let me do nothing else until I got that right with my wife. I had to call her up and say, Honey, I'm so sorry. I blew it. I should have kept my mouth shut. I got prideful. I acted in the flesh and I shouldn't have done that. I am so very, very thankful for the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you what else you'll have. You'll have a desire for things which are godly. The Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 7, he said, I've got this will within me to perform that which is good. What's he saying? I've got a desire within me for the things of God. When you truly get born again, there'll be a desire within you to please Jesus. And if that's not there, 
I don't know how you can say you, your, your conversion experience is authentic. I can't uh, see how you can say it's real. If you don't have a desire to please God in everything you do, to please Him on Sunday, yes. To please Him on Monday, yes. To please Him on Tuesday, yes. To please Him in the church house, yes. To please Him at your house, yes. To please Him in the schoolhouse, yes. A lot of people say, well, I prayed a prayer 10 years ago, but there's no difference in their life and something's wrong with that. And I'm here to tell you, Check in whom you've placed your faith and what you're trusting in to get you to heaven. A past experience that don't offer real change is not true conversion. Number two, a high moral code. When you practice a high moral code, this is what a lot of people believe. A lot of people believe this. You know, one day I'm going to stand before God and everything I've done right is going to be on one side of the scale and everything I've done wrong is going to be on the other side of the scale. And if somehow my good outweighs my bad, then God's going to let me into his kingdom. Let me say something to you. Your good things that you do apart when you are not in Jesus, when you've not been born again, the Bible says even those good things are like filthy rags, tainted by sin. The good things I did before I truly met Jesus, I truly gave my heart and life to Him, I wasn't doing those good things for God or for others. I was doing it for myself. And if you're honest, you probably were too. But I want you to know, with Jesus, hear me what I'm fixing to say. And don't misunderstand, but hear. It's not as much what you do but it is who you know. Now, listen. If you know Jesus, it will certainly change what you do. My good works, the things I do for the Lord, does not bring me my salvation. But I'll say this. It is certainly evidence of salvation. But works alone, having a high moral code, having a high moral standard, even though that's not a bad thing, that does not save you. You say, Brother, how do you know that? I know it because of the rich young ruler. You can find that story in Luke chapter 18. He come to Jesus. He said, good master, what shall I do? What can I do to obtain eternal life? And Jesus puts it out to him. He said, I'll tell you what you do. You keep the law. You obey your mother and father. You don't steal. You don't lie. You don't do all these things the Bible tells you you shouldn't do. And you know what he said? He said, I've kept all of those things from my youth. I have a high moral code. Now, what is Jesus trying to show this man? He's trying to show this man his sin. The Bible says that the law becomes our schoolmaster unto salvation. And what he wants this young man to see is that you have failed the law. Because you failed the law, you are considered a sinner. And because you are in your sin, you need a Savior. That's what he wants him to see, and that's what he wants us to see. That young man said, I've kept all these from my youth. You know what Jesus told him? He said, then you go sell all that you've got and give to the poor. Now, is Jesus trying to say that if I go home and sell everything I've got and give it to the poor, that somehow he's going to let me into his kingdom? No. He's trying to reveal to this young man and to all of us, listen to me this now. Hear what I'm fixing to say. That young man's problem is that he broke, broke the first and greatest commandment, that he should love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That young man loved money more than he loved God, and Jesus is trying to get him to see that. The Bible says he dropped his head and went away sorrowful because he was very rich. That young man had a high moral code, but he did not have a relationship with the Savior. 
And that's what brings eternal life. Number three, not only a past experience that doesn't produce real change, that's a non-proof of salvation. Practicing a high moral code, that's a non-proof of salvation. Head knowledge, but no heart knowledge. And where did I get that? Well, from Judas. Y'all remember Judas, don't you? How do you know Judas had a head knowledge of Jesus? If anybody did, he did. Matter of fact, he walked with him upon this earth for three and a half years. He heard the, he's heard the sermons that were preached. He saw the miracles that were performed. He heard the prayers that were prayed by the Lord. But what happened? If you remember in um, John chapter number 12 and verse 16, after Jesus had been anointed, Judas got mad and he said, why wouldn't this money or this uh, spikenard, this high costly perfume sold and we could give that money to the poor? You know what that revealed? That revealed in Judas that he thought, listen to me now, more of himself because he kept the money and was a lover of money and was a thief. The Bible will tell you that when you go back and read it. He thought more of himself what he could gain than what was worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had a head knowledge, but he didn't have a heart knowledge. And I fear so many people have that today. They know all the facts and figures about who Jesus is, what he did, all of the Bible stories that maybe you've heard since you've been this high. But it hadn't really made a difference in their heart. They're not walking, they don't have any true peace. They don't have any true purpose. I want to tell you something. Jesus did not save you to be miserable. And if you don't have peace in knowing that you've been born again, check up, something may be wrong. How do I know that? Because folks, when I was a little boy, I made a profession of faith. And I want you to know something. I think I did it mainly because everybody else was doing it. It wasn't until later on in life that I really got serious with the Lord. And he got serious with me. I had a head knowledge. I knew the answers to the question, but I didn't have a heart knowledge that really changed me on the inside and made a difference on the outside. Adrian Rogers says that most people are going to go to hell by about 18 inches. That's the difference between their head and their heart. There's got to be more than just you knowing all the Bible stories. Do you know the Savior? Is he your friend that sticks closer than a brother? Is he the one you run to? Number four, and I'm done. And this one right here really blows me away, but it's scriptural. Service in the name of Jesus. Everybody go with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 and Verse number 21. Jesus speaking here, he says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father. Now what's the will of his Father? The will of the Father is that all of us trust in the Son, which is in heaven. Verse 22. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? That's a good thing. And in thy name cast out devils. That's a good thing. And in thy name done many wonderful works. Those are all good things. But they were done with the wrong motivation. 
These people are saying, Lord, look at what we have done. And Jesus says in verse 23, And then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Folks, you can do good things for the wrong reason and miss heaven and go to hell. I want you to know the only way you're ever going to be born again and truly have a home in heaven is in Christ alone. It's you coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I know it's because of my sin I've been separated from you and I ask you to forgive me because I know you died for my sins at the cross. The Bible says if you believe in your heart that Jesus died for you, it's personal. It was for you he died. The Bible says that if you believe in your heart and then you confess that with your mouth, you say, Lord, I want you. I want to give you all I've got for as long as i got. You get sincere with the Lord. I'm telling you, you trust in Jesus. And the same one who saved me can and will save you. But it's not through your good works, practicing a high moral code, your service in the name of Jesus, or a past experience that never brought about real change. It's about a lifelong commitment that you make when you trust in Jesus and repent of your sins. Now, if you've never done that, what are you waiting on? I want to read to you five or six verses, and I'm done, of the testimony of the Apostle Paul from Philippians chapter 3. Now, we know the Apostle Paul was once Saul who was persecuting Christians, but guess what? He met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and everything changed in his life. I mean everything. He went from being the foremost persecutor of the, of the cause of Christ to being the foremost preacher of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Wrote 13 books in the New Testament. Listen what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 1. He says, finally my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Let me give you a proof of salvation. A proof of salvation, listen to me, first and foremost, is an overflowing heart of worship. The Apostle Paul throughout all his writings at the beginning when he greets the ones he's writing to, he gives praise, honor, and glory to the Lord Jesus. You'll see that throughout the body of his letter. He'll do the same. In the conclusion of his letter, he gives praise to Jesus for what Christ has done. The Apostle Paul realized what we must realize. It's not about who we are and what we've done. It's about who Christ is and what he's done for us. We are lost, undone, unworthy sinners who stand in need of a Savior. And it's only by God's grace, love, and mercy that we are saved. And so the Apostle Paul lavishes praise continually not on his accomplishments or who he is but upon the Lord Jesus Christ. My favorite one is in the book of Timothy when he says, Timothy, you continue in the good work that God has called you to because he's called you out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. He gives praise to Christ. Let me ask you this. Do you have an overwhelming heart of worship? Not just on Sunday, but sometimes you just get overwhelmed at all God's done for you. Does it ever become real to you that, man, if not for Jesus, I'm lost? I'm so thankful he never gave up on me. I think about that a lot. He continually followed hard after me, drawing me unto himself. And for that, I'm going to continually praise him. 
I look around at my babies and my wife and my church and my home and my job and my car and my shoes and my food. I just have to praise him. He's worthy. Can you say amen? There should be an overwhelming heart of worship, but there should be no confidence in the flesh. Look at verse 4. Though I might also have the confidence in the flesh, if any man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh. He said, if anybody can trust in the flesh, if anybody can point to the flesh and say, I was, I was doing my best, it was me. Look at verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day in the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew among Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is by the law. He said, I was blameless in all of that. I did my part. I did all I could do. But guess what? His still lost and he realized there was nothing in his flesh he could do he had to trust in Jesus that's what happened on the road to Damascus he says in verse 8 yea doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ he has no confidence in the flesh but all the confidence is in Jesus let me say something to you let me ask you do you, do you put your confidence in what you can do, how good you are, what you've done in the past? Folks, if that's you, then you need to check in whom you've placed your faith. Your confidence cannot be in your flesh. It must be in Christ. There must be an overwhelming heart, an overflow of worship in your life toward Christ. You have no confidence in the flesh. But look at the last one. Look at verse 9. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness. Watch this now which is of the law, but that which is of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul walks with great humility. Even though he went on three missionary journeys, listen to me now, preaching the gospel all over the known world, wrote 13 books in the New Testament, probably done more for the cause of Christ than any man that's ever been born again. The apostle Paul still said, I'm the cheapest among sinners. He still said, listen to me, he wasn't worthy of what God had called him to do. Why? He realized it was all about Christ and not about himself. He walked in humility. Be very, very careful of people who are always talking about what they do. A proof of salvation is a humble spirit. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith, faith, faith of Christ. How are we declared righteous before God? By faith in Jesus. In Christ alone, my hope is found. And when you've put your hope, your trust, your faith in Christ, let me say this, it's going to change your life. Do you know him today? Is he real to you today? I'm not talking about a superficial head knowledge do you know that you know you've been born again? If not, today's the day of salvation. My purpose in this message is so that the ones who are not saved be convicted by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the ones who are saved would be encouraged and strengthened, not believing the lie of the enemy. If you need Jesus in any way, you come today. If you need to be born again, you say, come, say, brothers, I need to be born again. I can't save you. This church can't save you. Walker and I certainly don't save you, but I'll tell you this. I will lead you to the one who can through the word of God. And you too can know Jesus as your personal Savior.
Just like I told that young man yesterday, I want you to know for sure. Not maybe, not might, not I hope so. Folks, we need a no-so salvation. Today could be our last day upon this earth. I want you to know that you've been born again. Everybody stand together. Some of you said, Brother, I've been saved, but I've got loved ones who haven't. This altar is a great place to pray for them. I still believe in the altar because it's at the altar that men, women, boys and girls do business with God. And so today, if you need to do business with God, do it. Whatever it might be, these altars are open for you.